All right, very good. Glad to see all of you today. We are going to uh, move forward a few more verses into our study of the little book of Jude in a few moments. But I would like to begin our study today with a passage in the Gospel of John in chapter 18. Gospel of John and chapter 18. By way of introduction, we want to take a look at uh, this passage uh, before we move into our study in Jude. John chapter 18. Gospel of John chapter 18, uh, this, these verses are right in the middle of the story of Jesus' trial and crucifixion, which you will recognize as we read it. Uh, but there is a crucial issue that is brought up by the Roman governor who's questioning Jesus. And so if you have got your place there, John chapter 18, I'm going to begin to read in verse 33. Verse 33. It says, Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my, serv my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Pilate's cynical remark has been an issue for human beings since ancient times. What is truth? About 500 years before Christ, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle began, began to consider how we know what we know. <clears throat> how do we figure out what's true? Well, without God, that's basically impossible. We can't know truth without knowing the truth giver. And I'll say that to you several times today. We can't know truth without knowing the truth giver. But in those ancient days, philosophers theorized that truth is somehow communicated to us through the natural world. And so they came up with various naturalistic explanations as to how truth could be learned by the human mind. And that pretty much stayed in normal uh, philosophical circles till about 400 years ago. And then the philosophers began to theorize that, that through human logic or through our life experiences we can gain truth. Then other philosophers rejected that idea and they said, well, actually truth evolves with time. And so what was true in one generation may not be true in another generation. To which other philosophers said, well, then there can't be any truth at all, because if it changes from generation to generation, then it would be unknowable. And around and around and around and around philosophers go, theorizing and challenging each other to no end. And if you read their stuff for very long, which I did many years ago, 
you'll blow a mental fuse and have a meltdown in your thinking because they all contradict each other and it becomes one big soup of meaningless intellectual gobbledygook that does nothing but confuse people. As Jesus said in Matthew 15, when the blind lead the blind, they both fall into the ditch. Because you can't know the truth unless you know the truth giver. Don't drink the water unless you know its source. Don't eat the food unless you trust the cook. Don't call something truth unless you know who said it. And unfortunately, in the modern world, the last 150 years or so, so-called science has become the ultimate source of truth, even though that really is a ridiculous notion. I've lived certainly long enough, as many of you have, to, to see scientific, quote-unquote, conclusions get debunked from decade to decade. And, and anyone who reads and observes the scientific community knows that science is always changing and developing with new discoveries. That's why they call it science. It's a growing body of knowledge, always changing and updating. But our, our latest philosophy that's out there these days is called postmodernism. That's where we are here in 2022. And that basically teaches that nobody can be certain about anything. People talk about living in the postmodern world. That's what they mean. Nobody can be certain about anything. And if you say you know something for sure, then they think you've got some kind of mental illness or you're just incredibly arrogant or crazy. Because they don't think anybody can know anything about anything for sure. There's no certainty out there in our world today. And that's the way it is in our society, in politics, in religion. You can't be sure about anything. So Pilate's question from 2,000 years ago still haunts the unbelieving world. What is truth? Well, the Old Testament, in three different places, in Deuteronomy, Psalms, and Isaiah, calls God the God of truth. John 10.35, Jesus said, The Scripture cannot be broken. You all know the famous verse in John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When Jesus was praying to God the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, He said, Your word is true. That's John 17. Romans chapter 1 tells us that God has revealed basic truths about Himself in the natural world. And I do want you to turn there, if you would, to Romans chapter 1. A couple of scriptures I want to take a look at there. Romans chapter 1. You may be familiar with the passage in Psalm 19, 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. And here in Romans chapter 1, a pivotal passage in our understanding of the world and the way it's gone. We refer to it on a number of different occasions. Uh, the entire passage starts in verse 18, goes to verse 28. We're not going to read all of it. I just want you to look at verse 20 initially. Romans 1 verse 20. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, meaning God's being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. 
What is the Apostle Paul writing here? He said, God has revealed himself to mankind in the created world in general ways. He said, we can understand God's power. We can understand that God is there. We can understand that, that he has created all these things. We can recognize him as the creator by looking at the created things, looking at what God did. As I quoted to you a moment ago, Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. And so God has revealed basic truths about himself in the natural world. But then I want you to look, if you would, at verse 28. They say we won't read the entire passage because I just want to point out this one thing to you. Verse 28, he says, Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting. And verse 29 and 30 and 31, he talks about what those are. Sexual immorality, unrighteousness, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. We say, wow, that's a bad list. Yeah, it is. And you know where it all started? The first phrase of verse 28. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. You see, when we do not retain the knowledge of God, society slides into a moral sewer. Which brings me back again to the thought, you cannot know truth without knowing the truth giver. And if you don't retain God in your knowledge, then we go down this terrible slope of horrible moral failure. You see, God has written the very concept of right and wrong into the heart of man. Look across the page in Romans 2, the very first phrase of verse 15. He's talking about people who don't even know the law. Of God, And he says, yet they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. He said God has put the concept of right and wrong right into the heart of man through our conscience. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 3.11, he said God has placed eternity in our hearts, this sense of eternity, that this world is not all there is, that there is a longing in the heart of man to know truth and the one who gives truth. But you can't know truth without knowing the truth giver. So what is truth? If we're going to answer Pilate's question, if we're going to deal with what this battle is that, that, uh, that Jude is dealing with, that we'll look at in just a second, well, what is truth? How would we define truth from the standpoint of the Bible? I'll give you, I've seen big, long, two and three sentences. Once let, let me condense it for you and just say it this way. Truth is anything that is consistent with the will and character of God. Truth is anything that is consistent with the will and the character of God. Truth is God's expression of himself. He is the author of truth, the source of truth, the final standard for truth, the ultimate judge of truth. Uh, so truth is anything that is consistent with the will and character of God. That's why when Jesus was being questioned by Pilate, he said, I came to bear witness to the truth and everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And when Pilate said, what is truth? Jesus could have said to him, you're looking at it. It would have been a correct answer. Of course, Jesus knew where he was headed. He knew what the will of God was in that area. 
He didn't, he didn't try to evangelize Pilate at that particular time. Although he did scare him to death a couple of times. You know, when Pilate says to him, Don't you know I have power to crucify? And Jesus says, You don't have any power at all. Unless it was given to you from above. About gave Pilate a panic attack. But Jesus Christ is the truth. And he said, I came to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So truth is anything that is consistent with the will and the character of God. So to the book of Jude, Jesus' half-brother, as we saw last week, Judah in Hebrew, Judas in Greek, Jude in English, wrote this little short letter to his fellow followers of Jesus, challenging them to earnestly contend, as we saw last week, meaning to strenuously battle for the faith, the truth about Jesus, his person and work, who he is and what he did. To earnestly contend for the faith, to, or to strenuously battle for the truth about Jesus. He said it was once for all delivered to us. It was handed down to us with finality and certainty we talked about last week. So this verse vigorously stands against postmodernism that teaches that you can't be certain about anything. Jews says, oh yes, you can be certain about the faith. It was handed down to us with certainty and finality, once for all delivered to us. And the reason for this battle, Jude says, is because the truth is under attack. The battle started in the Garden of Eden when Satan asked Eve, did God really say that? And, and he has posed that question to people all over the world for the last 6,000 years. Did God really say that? Oh, I think he's lying. He's just trying to hide something from you so you won't become like him. And, and that lie has been a part of Satan's strategy ever since. So Jude says in verse 4, certain men have crept in unnoticed. That's where we're going to pick it up this week. Verse 4, we're just going to go through verse 7. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given, given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth and as, as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. As we unpack Jude's thoughts, we want to divide them into three parts. The presence of apostates, the description of apostates, and the destruction of apostates. Just in these verses 4 through 7. And remember that the New Testament word for apostates means, means to turn from, to depart from, to reject. And so Jude is describing false teachers who pretend to be followers of Jesus for a period of time. And they gain a following of people, and then they reject what they used to teach. We might say that they have done a theological 180, and they flipped around the opposite way. 
And notice as Jude starts out here talking about the presence of apostates, he doesn't specifically say what these certain men are teaching, nor does he name them or identify them in any way, other than to say certain men have crept in unnoticed. See, it doesn't matter who they were or specifically what they were teaching. What matters is, is that they were perverting the truth and that they were already in. Certain men have crept in. He, he said, they're, they're already here. They, all snuck, they, they already snuck into our churches. They already snuck into our fellowships. And you know, we have them as well today. They pretend to be Christian. They pretend to have respect for the Bible's teaching. But they put a spin on the truth. And they write books. They write magazine articles. They have radio and TV programs. They teach in Christian colleges and seminaries. Sometimes they pastor churches. They have impressive websites. And they are already present in the circle of Bible-respecting folks. So beware, Jude is saying. Don't think that just because they sound nice and quote verses that, that, that all is well. He said, certain men have crept in unnoticed. They are present among us. And then he describes them in several ways. He describes them in three ways. The description of apostates. He says, first of all, that they are ungodly. Now we use that word often. And we generally understand it to, to mean wicked or lawless, which is not a, a wrong understanding. But technically, the term here, ungodly, means no respect for God. The ungodly person has no desire to please God, no plan to please God, uh, no effort to try to please God, no respect for what God says. Their lifestyle does not in indicate any respect for the Lord. And what makes this interesting is that these certain men that Jude is describing, they are operating within the circle of Bible-respecting, God-fearing people. Yet he says they have no respect for God. They're ungodly. And why does he say that? Well, secondly, he describes them by saying they have turned God's grace into an excuse for loose living. That's what he means by they turned the grace of God into lewdness. They are, they are turning God's grace into an excuse for loose living. The word lewdness is translated several ways in different English Bibles. Sometimes they use the big word licentiousness, which means uh, a, a license to sin, sensuality, unrestrained vice, gross immorality, and these false teachers basically are saying this, and I've heard this said by some folks along the way over the years, you know, God loves you, He understands your faults, He knows you can't help it, so just do whatever you want, He won't care. Live any way you want, I mean, you can always be forgiven, this is the age of grace. Just be yourself, be who you are, do whatever you want. And you know, this is the age of grace, and God does understand us. Psalm 103 says he knows that we are dust, but that doesn't give us the license to do anything we want. Galatians 5.13 says to not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh or as a cloak to cover up the flesh. Great verse in Galatians 5.13, Paul says that yeah, we are free. We are free from the penalty of sin. We are free from God's judgment. But he says, you can't, you can't take that and turn that into a license to sin. Because we can't, we can't sin freely without consequences. God does judge sin in the life of a believer. And I'm sure you probably are familiar with these verses when we observe the Lord's Supper together. We always read the passage in 1 Corinthians 11. 
where Paul was talking about people who were not who were not participating in the Lord's Supper in a worthy way. That is that they were not they were not discerning, they were not respecting the Lord's body. They weren't respecting what Jesus Christ did for them on the cross. And so they were observing the Lord's Supper with known sin in their life. And the Apostle Paul said there in 1 Corinthians 11, some are weak and sick and some sleep. They have even died taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. 1 John chapter 5, the Apostle John wrote, There is sin unto death. And he's not writing to the unbelieving world. He's writing to believers in Christ. He said, There is sin unto death. And he said, I'm not even sure you should pray for that. He goes on a few verses later to say, He who is born of God guards himself. He fights against those sinful inclinations. You see, God's grace is not a license to sin. Yet Jude says there are false teachers out there who promote this very thing. They teach that you are free in Christ to do whatever you want. So Jude describes these apostates having no respect for God, turning God's grace into a license to sin. And then thirdly, he says they deny the sovereignty of God over them. The last part of verse 4 says they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. See, they deny the lordship of the Lord. Interestingly, two different words translated Lord here. Lord God and our Lord Jesus, excuse me, our Lord Jesus Christ. There are two different words there that are both translated Lord. The first one means one with supreme authority or absolute ownership. It's sometimes it's translated master. That's the one that's connected to God. To our only master, God, our, our only one with absolute ownership. The next one, connected to Lord Jesus Christ, uh, it, is, it means uh, one who exercises authority. Uh, they are related words, but not identical. One emphasizes having total ownership. The other emphasizes the position of oversight, the authority to oversee and to manage. You see, God owns us, as we saw last week, if you were with us, when you looked at 1 Corinthians 6. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And remember, Paul said, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Jude is referring to that again here. God owns us. And Jesus Christ, he said, is exercising his authority from the Father to oversee and manage the circumstances of our lives. He's the sovereign ruler of his universe, and that includes us. Our lives and our times are in the hands of God. And Jude says that there are many false teachers out there. They deny this truth. They are rebellious and independent and stubborn and arrogant, and they won't submit to the Lord. But then Jude reminds his readers and us, talking about the destruction of the apostates, that judgment is coming for these folks. Those who defect from the truth and reject the truth will face the judgment of God. Their, their destruction is coming. And he uses three Old Testament examples. He talks about, in fact, let's read it again in verse 5. Now I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. 
As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Jude says, first of all, remember the children of Israel. He says, all of them were delivered from Egypt. He said, but many of them then died in the wilderness because they saw God's works and they still rejected him. And you know the story. Certainly you've been around the Bible enough. You recognize the story just as Jude's readers would have. You remember the children of Israel, of course, delivered from, uh, from, uh, from e- the e- Egyptian bondage through the ten plagues and, uh, and, and all of those things. You certainly remember some of you uh, guys who are probably in my, in my category age-wise. You remember the old Charlton Heston movie, The Ten Commandments. Even people who never read the Bible know, know about that movie. And, 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 and Charlton Heston plays the part of Moses and God sends the ten plagues and all these wonderful things happen, these tremendous miracles and God delivers the children of Israel and they go out and Pharaoh pins them against the Red Sea and they parch the waters and they walk across and they've seen these marvelous works of God. And then they come up to the Jordan River and they send in the spies. And they say, man, there's no way we can take that land. We look like grasshoppers to these guys. I mean, there's, there, there, there's no way. Yeah, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, but we just, we just can't take this land. I mean, the, the, the people are powerful and, and they got walled cities and things are high. There's no way we can do it. Then we, of course, in our time period, we're like by saying, wait a minute, didn't you just see that the God part the waters of the Red Sea? What's the wall of a city? Thunk. I mean, it's nothing. You didn't see God, God bring manna down from, I mean, you, you saw all the plagues God brought on, on Egypt? And, and you don't think God can help you to win those battles? You see, what happened was they saw God's works, but they still rejected him. And so God says, all right, every man 20 years age, who, is, who is 20 years of age and older is going to die in the wilderness, and you're going to wander around in a big circle for the next 40 years until that whole generation's gone. And then I'll start with your kids, and we'll, we'll try again. Because they said to the Lord, oh, Lord, why did you bring us out here? You're going to make our children a prey for the enemy. You're going to give our kids to the enemy. God said, well, no, I'm not. Actually, I'm going to have you die in the wilderness, and then I'm going to give them the land because you rejected me. And Judah's saying, hey, you can't preach the power of God and then deny it. You can't see the hand of God and then refuse to obey it. He says, remember Israel and the exodus from Egypt. He said, because you, you, you know that they, they all left the land, but the whole generation died in the wilderness. You think God's not going to judge false teachers? Remember what he did to Israel. Then he gives his second illustration, remember the angels. Now, there are several opinions regarding this verse when he says, the angels did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, several opinions regarding what event Jude is referring to. My opinion, and I think probably the most likely one, is that Jude is referring to the incident in, in Genesis chapter 6. The reason why I believe that is because Second Peter, the Apostle Peter, refers to the same thing and talks about it in the same way. He's re- referring to this incident in Genesis 6 in which demons, angels who were thrown out of heaven with Satan when he rebelled against God, Demons possessed the bodies of men and incited them to have sexual relations with wicked women. Thus, they have totally violated God's order and structure of creation. 
I said Peter writes about him in Second Peter in chapter two, and this this passage and Peter writing in Second Peter two also indicates God took those angels and locked them up in chains to await their final day of judgment. Jews' point being simply this: Hey, those guys were they were angels; they were in the presence of God. They knew God. They heard His voice. They served Him. They ministered to Him. You talk about privilege. And a position they had as angels, and yet they followed Satan in his rebellion, and then they went even further than that. They crossed over the line between angels and human beings. And he said, that, and they totally violated God's order and structure of creation. And God, he says, took those angels and wrapped them up in chains and said, you're going to wait in this place, lower than hell, a place that Peter refers to in Second Peter 2, awaiting their final day of judgment. So again, Jude's saying, you think God's not going to judge false teachers? Oh yeah, remember what he did to Israel. Remember what he did to the angels there in Genesis 6. And then he uses his third illustration to remember Sodom and Gomorrah. And of course, everybody who's been around the Bible for very long knows this story. If you ever want to read it again sometime, it's in Genesis chapter 18 and 19. God supernaturally destroyed those two cities because of their aggressive homosexual behaviors and practices. And you know the story, I don't have to tell you all about the, the whole thing again, but you remember when the angels came into Sodom to tell Lot he needed to run because God was going to just destroy the city. And that night, this crowd of men crash in around Lot's house. and We saw new men come into town today. Bring them out so we can know them, the Bible says. What they're referring to is they wanted to homosexually rape them. Because they were new people in town. We want to know them too. That's how wicked and vile and ungodly all of that was. And you know the amazing thing was that that whole Sodom and Gomorrah thing was only 450 years after the flood. Noah had just died like 100 years before that. Noah's son Shem was still alive at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Surely you would think there was some remnant of knowledge of the judgment of God on the earth during the flood. Yet Jude says they rejected it all and they violated God's order and structure of family life and marriage. So Jude says false teachers are present among us. You can know they are or what they are by what they teach. They don't respect the Lord. They turn God's grace into a license for immoral living. They reject the sovereignty of God over their lives. But he said judgment's coming. We see enough from the scripture to know what God will eventually do. Remember Israel who rejected God's display of power. Remember the angels who violated their God-ordained position in creation. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah who violated the God-ordained structure for marriage. And Jude is telling us this to, to motivate us to earnestly contend for the faith. There is a standard of truth. As we said early in the message, truth is anything that is consistent with the will and the character of God. Truth is God's expression of himself. He is the author of truth and the source of truth and the final standard for truth and the ultimate judge of the truth. So truth is anything that is consistent with the will and character of God. And when we, by the grace of God, find that truth, then Jude says we got to stand up for it. We have to represent it. 
Some years ago, I came across the story of a well-known NASA scientist from a past generation, Werner von Braun. He was heavily involved in the space program in the 1950s and 60s, and although Werner von Braun passed away in 1977, many of his interesting quotes have found their way onto the Internet. A couple of them are kind of humorous as a, as a research rocket scientist. He said, it takes 65,000 errors to be qualified to build a rocket. He said once, basic research is what I'm doing when I don't know what I'm doing. What are you doing? Oh, basic research. Well, I don't really know what I'm doing, so I'm just doing basic research. But then he said something very interesting once. He said, my experiences with science led me to God. They challenge science to prove the existence of God, but must we really light a candle in order to see the sun? But my favorite is when a journalist asked him once later in his life, Dr. Von Braun, what is the greatest truth you have ever discovered? Von Braun, who had earned his Ph.D. by the time he was 22 and was one of NASA's notable rocket scientists in those early years of the program, his response to that, what is the greatest truth you have ever discovered? He said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. There is truth, and we can know it through the scriptures and through a relationship with Jesus Christ. We can't know truth until we know the truth giver. Do you know him? And if you do, are you standing up for Jesus, earnestly contending for the faith? You see, error is exposed when we stand for the truth. May God help us to do that. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this passage of Scripture today, it's uh, very pointed, very difficult in some ways, and uh, uh, very forceful repudiation of so many things in our culture and society today. As Jude reminds us to stand for the faith, because truth is under attack. And many people pretending to be followers of Jesus have snuck into our institutions, our Christian institutions. They, they call themselves pastors. They call themselves professors of the Bible. They call themselves representatives of Jesus Christ. And yet they are teaching things that deny the very faith. And they've turned the grace of God into a license to sin and they've rejected the lordship of the, of the Lord himself over their lives. And Lord, I pray that as we stand for the truth and as we may be tempted to falter, may be tempted to waver, may we remember that you do judge error and you do judge those who teach it. Help us, Lord, to be faithful in standing up for the Lord Jesus Christ. And may that simple truth Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. May it guide our lives as we seek to be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.